Welcome to the Return Worship Songwriting Podcast, episode 19. This is an interview special where I meet Malcolm Duplessis of Common Exchange. During the interview, you'll hear one or two clips of songs from the Common Hymnal, which is what Malcolm has set up for sharing songs from writers across the world. So sit back and enjoy. Malcolm Duplessis, welcome to the Resound Worship Songwriting Podcast. Thank you so much, Joel. Nice to say hello. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Now, Malcolm, I need to introduce you to our listeners. And I went onto your, um, onto your website, which we'll talk about a bit later. Um, and there's a fantastic paragraph there describing you, which I'm going to read out. Oh, my goodness. And then, and then maybe we can pick out one or two of the aspects from it. It's, it's great. It says, um, Malcolm has straddled the worlds of prophetic Christianity and showbiz for over 30 years, ranging from church planter to record company exec, from songwriter to song publisher, from pioneer of multicultural, multilingual worship music that fused praise and protest in the apartheid era of his native South Africa, to artist manager in that same context, from consulting ministries, movements, artists, songwriters, record labels and publishing companies in the Christian arena, to helping develop top 40 songwriters in the mainstream. <laughs> that's, that's, quite, that's quite a paragraph. And there's only two sentences, actually. <laughs> that's how to pack it in. <laughs> it's called being extremely random. You just sound like you're very busy. <laughs> Malcolm has spent 30 years being very busy. Change, changing gears from things that have nothing to do with each other. And this poor gearbox is just grating nonstop. Oh, I bet, I bet. Well, how about, let's just go back. Um, let's pick something out there, which is the bit about um, church planter, uh, pioneer of multicultural, multilingual worship music that fused Praise and uh, fused praise and protest in the apartheid era of your native South Africa. So at the moment you're you know you're in Nashville and you've been out in the states for, for quite a number of years, haven't you? But that's not where your origins are, as your accent gives away. Yes. Um, can you just tell us a bit about that um, that life in in South Africa, particularly in your your church planting and your and that pioneering work in worship that you were involved in? You know, I'll make it brief. Uh, I was involved with a team that planted a church when I was 24 years old. I often say 23, but I did the calculation the other day and realized it was one year later. And um, was an elder, a younger elder, and a worship leader in a predominantly white community, community of, of educated, thoughtful, young white people in apartheid. And in the first two years of that church's existence, it was my first opportunity as a young white person to come to terms with what had been hidden through you know, incredible propaganda from me. So I was, I first began as an activist in Christianity to say, we have an inferiority complex as a nation. We only sing songs that come from far away. We don't think our songs are worth it. But if God's real and alive and active in our culture, we should at least bring our offerings. And so that was my initial foray into the worship arena. Let's write our own songs. It's okay. Even if they're bad, we should write them. And a couple of years into that journey, I suddenly became aware that I was in the minority community in a, in a, in a country that, was, that, that dealt very, very poorly with the majority community, and we needed to engage 
in, in, in a more circumspect, sensitive, respectful way in our culture. And so I became an activist for white and black writing songs together. And so through a very, it's a long story, there's no short way mm. to shorten it, but through a journey of, of conviction and uncomfortableness, I just went on a journey to, to um, build community and black culture in my country. And that resulted in a, in a multilingual, multicultural community. It, it was, it, it was, it was, it was, challenging it was challenging times our project was challenging but basically we we had a community of, of people from multiple languages multiple backgrounds multiple different experiences exploring what it, what it meant to worship together and that resulted in, in a, a fair amount of protest it wasn't just let's all be happy God's wonderful but but the journey into South Africa um, meant that we had to face the realities of our country and so it, it meant that I had, we had a record that was banned by our government from radio play. Uh -huh. And media play, and this is—I could tell lots of the, the the sensational stories, but it it was an adventure, and it's and it's the reason I left South Africa. It's not that I escaped, but I felt God call me to to in later in life to to never lose that vision. I felt him assign me to a project that I knew would last for five years, and that was the five years leading up to the release from Nelson Mandela from prison in 1990, and then I just felt later in life I was to be involved in encouraging. A younger generation do something quite similar in a time of international crisis and we are fast approaching another inter time of international crisis so for our uk listeners i guess whilst we you know there are there are racial issues in this country as there are in 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 other countries but our experience it's hard for us to imagine that experience where um simply working together as black and white and worshipping together was in itself an act of protest. Correct. <laughs> and again, I think in the States, there's a bit more of that history, although it has a different story. Um, as worship writers, sometimes we're nervous of, of the idea of protest in our worship songs. We sort of want to please everybody um, and back away sometimes from the things that are difficult. Is that something you carried forward with you? Or has it been difficult to carry that? Has it, was that an exhausting journey that at some point you thought, I just need to do something simple and plain and unprovocative? I've tried always to be simple and unprovocative. It's really difficult when you wired a certain way, if I have to just be totally truthful. So I've begged, I've pleaded with God and myself, stop it, control yourself, just chill out. But um, as it, in, in, a, in its deepest form, my crude summary of worship is that it's about affirmation. Worship is, is the act of affirming the person and the character and, and our relationship with God. And affirmation needs the counterbalance of protest to be trustworthy. Because if, if I'm an encourager, the, because encouragement, if, if I, how, we, our affirmation of God is proved correct by the way we affirm each other. How can I believe that you are a true affirmer of an unseen God if you never affirm me whom you can see? But affirmation and encouragement can quickly slip into flattery and to platitudes. And the only way that it's held in balance, the only way that you believe me when I say, Joel, I like you, is when you know that if you do something that's really upsetting to me, then I'm going to tell you that too. So that when I say something pleasant, that you that there's a context for it. Praise and protest are inextricably intertwined. They they're inseparable. And so I believe that in my deepest core of my being. I wish I didn't. Yeah. Uh, um, 
but but a cursory read through the Bible will let you know that protest is valid. A cursory read through church history will let you know that protest is valid. The Protestant church is from the word protest. We don't often think about it that yeah, way. Of course. <laughs> and so w worship and activism, worship and protest have have basically straddled Christianity and pretty much stopped about 50 years ago when in America there were two movements that happened at the same time in the 60s a charismatic renewal movement and a civil rights movement and they ran on separate parallel parallel tracks and and we diverged mm. um, at a point when we should have those two things had historically always converged you look through you look through your British hymn book and a huge preponderance all those William Coopers and um, uh, you know Isaac Watts and all of them mm. have histories. Isaac Watts grew up and his dad was in prison when he was born for activism. It just you just look through the legacy. <laughs> That's the legacy of of the British songwriting tradition. For example, that there's no way of separating them. carry on the story so you left your native south africa and you you moved to the states um and for for the in the sort of the years that followed you've got involved right at the heart of i guess what what was emerging and becoming this worship industry didn't you can you just tell us a bit about your role the kind of role you've played over the last uh, you know, well decades i guess you know, when i moved here i'm i had a chance to do a project with warner brothers that wasn't in the christian space it was a. It was a, my chance to bring the Black American and Black South African musicians together outside of Christianity, and um, and I moved here. And the way that all happened was so exciting and amazing. It was like my life had been in my twenties, and so I I thought that was going to be my life, but unfortunately I had to survive and do other stuff. I couldn't just have all these the dreams of my twenties. That they weren't they weren't very they didn't keep me going financially because being a protester you quickly learn doesn't is it last year this year doesn't get you jobs um so i've cons for the most part consulted in the worship world i actually did it f for kingsway music in england and emi christian music in america for a chunk of that time and i suppose i've been the older person who helps younger people not do all the silly things that i did when i was young if I had me, with all my flaws now, available to me when I was 25, I, I could have used that, the current Malcolm, even though I'm, 
I'm still a fragile soul, but I could have used this version then. And so I've, I've found myself spending the last part of my life to that. And then I've been several things because I've, because I'm random or maybe sometimes even the prince of random. I, I, I've, I've, I suppose I've I found a way to explain ministry to business people, to explain mm. business to ministry people. I, you, the 25 year old Malcolm would have been violently opposed to the idea of, um, Christian music in any form of the industry or anything. You, you would, if you met that version, you would have been horrified. I've compromised mm. as I've got older. I've learned that compromise is, has, is legit. Yeah. And, um, and so I've, and actually, so I, I, I identify in the underground, but I've spent my last, you know, 20 years very much in the overground and have come to peace with, with the, the contradictions and the nuance and all the adventure that that um, provides for me. So you were, you know, in that, that role, particularly is that kind of go between um, with Kingsway in the UK and EMI in the States, uh, you were involved in a time when there was a quite there was sort of a flood of worship music came from Britain, didn't there? With Correct. Delirious, Matt Redman, Tim Hughes, and some of these kind of names. What I mean, I guess as a as, as an outsider, um, although a very welcome outsider, yes. do, do you look and see something that was going on at that time, which which meant that that, that, that worship music was particularly coming from Britain? from those guys. It was like they were kind of, they, they were changing the scene a bit. Well, I'm from a British colony and it had somewhat mm. of a life in England prior. So I was familiar with the various movements and stuff in England. In some, yes, there was something, there was something special that happens. I mean, just from, you know, everybody's going to look at the same information from their vantage point. From where I stood, um, a great song is a great song, mostly because it has great lyrics. If it has a great tune but not great lyrics, it's not an enduring song. Mm. Britain has the unfair advantage of being the masters of the English language and being very adept at ma managing poetry and theology. And so, yes, I was that was a, felt very timely, op op you know, opportunity for me. But also, it was me functioning as an activist because when I was in South Africa, I, I was I was saying no. Because the black guys in South Africa always all wanted to be Michael Jackson in my youth. And I said, no, 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 no. There's nothing worse than a young Zulu being a Michael Jackson impersonator. <laughs> right. you should, we should do our music. It's fine. It's good. And that activist part saw, oh, here's England. They don't have a chance on the, on the international stage. And there's something rich here. So I, I, I felt like I was a lobbyist to give someone new a chance. England no longer needs a chance. It's It's... It's yeah. a fair opportunity in the praise and worship space. <laughs> so I'm, I'm moving to Costa Rica, Malawi, and Sweden. You... <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but there was, there was something beautiful and something beautiful remains. It's, it's a fine tightrope for England and for America yeah. and Australia because once success happens and doors open, we can lose our focus. And it's an important time for England to, to remain the simple, humble participant in this ecosystem. Yeah. Well, I think re remaining in anything for Britain at the moment is quite a sensitive topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have no idea what ecosystem we'll find our way into in the next, in the next few years. <laughs> Thank you.
Right up to date then, because now you've um, you know with all of this experience behind you, you've you've launched a new a new movement. I guess perhaps is the re- best best expression for it, and that's common exchange. And a, a particular uh, expression you you use talking about is the decolonization of the worship movement. So you can just tell us a bit about what about the motivation behind that, and then we'll move into how you're kind of trying to work that out. Well, I suppose the underlying concept, the underlying idea is that the priesthood of believers, the idea that God's people should be a collaborative community is a very noble and worthwhile and important one. It was one of the underlying motives of the, of the Reformation that everybody has access to God, that everybody should have a chance to participate meaningfully in communal life, not just a bunch of exclusives. But the, the logic, the, the, the idea of the priesthood of believers, of, of everybody playing a part, is is the embracing of that the affirmation of that positive idea involves an affiliated protest because it's it's very easy for um for people with gifts to have an overinflated sense of influence or destiny or need to make an impact i come from a british colony britain has that somewhere in its history Possibly, so I grew up. My my protest activity in South Africa was in was totally tied to colonization and the trauma that colonization inflicted, particularly on the indigenous community. So, but I see that happening all over in this world. It's not just praise and worship, but in worship, you know, we have um two hundred thousand songs in the database of CCLI. Mm-hmm. Two hundred of those songs have proliferated Christianity on a very broad level. They're written by about 18 people. Amazing. You and I know that there's not lots of, there's not hundreds and hundreds of amazing songwriters, but we both know there's more than 18. <laughs> and so Common Exchange, or my current pursuit, is to just champion the idea that the more people that get a chance to play, the better. Currently, Christianity has been, I don't want to use the word seduced, because then it sounds like I'm more mad, because I'm actually not mad, but currently, Christianity has veered quite significantly to a celebrity culture. Yeah. And so when, when someone says, oh, we need a song for our church, we, we go to these few celebrity movements or celebrity people and we source our songs and we don't necessarily think, like I was thinking in 1983, what happens if we wrote our own? What happens if we explored? Right now, there's some young guy in Syria, another young guy in Lebanon that wrote the most beautiful songs in Christianity that we will never be able to find because we we don't know how to find them and we're not curious enough. Yeah. And so the the idea is to is to trigger a movement of curiosity to just go to, to go on a treasure hunt for hidden kingdom jewels and to bring dignity to as many people as possible. Yeah. Now, we at Resound, uh, well, we resonate with a lot of that. Yes, totally. And um, and we love, we love the local church songwriter. We love the 
the local indigenous writer who can write in a voice that no one else can, who's able to encapsulate the um, the experiences, the learning, the character, personality, traditions, and so on of a community, a church, or you know whatever it might be. Um, but we're also very aware of that big juggernaut, which is the worship industry, mm-hmm. and and it can be quite almost an intimidating thing to try and get in the way of it. How do we how do we get f- how did how does anyone compete, I guess, is the answer. There's a lot of money, there's a lot of profile and so on involved. Is it just a question of little movements springing up here and there? Is it about bringing things together in the way that you're trying to do? What do you think? Well, if you, if you want to compete, if you want to use the word compete, if we're going to compete yeah. in the logic of the current sort of way the world works, then we have to lodge one of the big influences out and you take their place. I think that the godly, the kingdom way to participate is literally what I said is spreading virally the idea that getting more people to the table is a godly concept. That includes every culture, that includes every nationality, that includes old people because it's be- we've, we live in a world where the cult of youth rules. Yeah. But, but I'm 57 and I'm, I have things to contribute in this world that I did not have when I was 21. I know that. It doesn't mean I'm wonderful or I'm super powerful, but I have another valid I have another valid role. And I found my role being, you know, in some ways a dad to a bunch of youngsters. And we need so I just know to spread that idea. If if I, we could do it by getting money and investments and investors and but then we would just be reinterpreting what we have. And so just virally spreading the idea. Just imagine if, in, if increasingly church communities were curious and gave value to innovation, original thought, bringing dignity to every person in their own local community, because it, it spreads. So yeah. for me, the worship encounter is the template for, for the way the ecosystem works. And now, you know, if you read through some of my things on that, that site, one of the great tragedies in the history of Christianity was the middle, for a thousand years, in the Dark Ages, one person led the worship encounter in a language that nobody could understand, yeah. and the rest watched. And then a Reformation was, it was a reworking of all that, and, and choirs started, and people started singing in harmonies, and all these different things were innovated. But we back to the, in many ways, to the idea that some, one person leads the event, and the other people watch. And it's time to instigate that it's that the that everybody having a tone is important in the lo- in the local service in the local gathering. That because we live in the age of um, the internet, and it's the great leveler. Every the, the internet has fulfilled the words of John the Baptist: "Every mountain shall be made low, and every valley shall be raised up, and we all stand on a level playing field." But Christianity has to catch up. With what the internet has has forced on so yeah. m- so many spheres, so I just think that idea. If we change it, if you and I suddenly got someone to give us a couple million bucks and we went on a campaign to make you famous, we would just be duplicating the culture we yeah. have. But if you and I went in the underground and just yeah. spread the idea that we give, let's give everybody a turn. Just that idea. 
that would enrich Christianity substantially. Yeah. Well, do you think that means we need to change some of our model of worship, of corporate worship, as well as well as just sourcing songs from other places? Actually, we need to do something in our corporate worship which reflects this idea of everyone has a term. We're all a priesthood, and and therefore possibly we need different songs, not just songs from from elsewhere. Correct. Yeah. And I I don't know when we say that I don't know that we want to just change it and throw one system out for another system. I think spreading the idea. I don't believe that everybody having a tone is equal with spontaneity. For example, in the last few years, in the underground, because I, I live in the overground and in the underground, <laughs> and the underground in the, in the last five years here in America, where I live, there's two new expressions. The, the kids who are doing spontaneous, hippie-style, old-fashioned, charismatic worship, like I became a Christian in, in yeah. the 70s, and then there's the liturgical movement. Both of them have the same thing in common. In a world where when you go to the church meeting, it, the band is so loud that you don't sing because you can't hear your voice and you're embarrassed that the person in front of you will hear how out of tune you are. The, the, the United Pursuit, whom I work with very closely and who are becoming very partners with me in the Common Exchange Project, they made a record in 2010 in the living room. And the thing that resonated with the generation was that it was a setting where you could feel the presence of the other believers because you could hear their voices. But the yeah. same could be said of the liturgical movement because these kids that get to the part where it says, and peace be with you too, you feel the presence of the other believers. And as long as that's the goal, I don't know, I don't know that I want to be an advocate for spontaneity. I grew up in spontaneous prophetic Christianity and I sang prophetic spontaneous songs and then at 28 I overdosed for good yeah. because my spontaneity became 50 cliches and and I recognized that at 28 oh I don't think this is working as well as as I intended and so and it was the hymn the British hymn dear Lord and Father of mankind that took me out that season we didn't we it wasn't one of our hymns and I found that lyric and sang that. I went one week and sang at my church that song only, and then went and sat down, and all was taken care of. So yeah. I don't know that I want to be an advocate for spontaneity. I want to be an advocate for giving people a turn, because you could have a church of 100,000 people and have massive gatherings and still be innovating how everybody engages. So right now, Christianity has become a Xerox machine. You know, yeah. there, there's several templates, and you just Xerox the one that that you feel is going to help you grow. And I don't. And so, worship has become a karaoke industry. There's thousands of people using the same arrangements. They use the same tracks as the original artists, excepting that the singers don't sing quite as in tune or aren't as pleasant to hear. And the sound engineers are often not very skillful. It's just the willing guy in the church. So you have people in a in a room with a 112 people singing songs that were written for 10,000 people to sing, singing as if their audience were a million people. And actually, there's just 112 of us sitting in the room saying, why don't yeah. we, let's turn the PA off, get out those guitars, <laughs> and, and let's, we'll be okay. We love God. It's going to be okay. We don't have to try so hard. This fainting soul, this wandering heart, Distance grows, the light so far, voice soft and still, that calls me home. Oh, 
fascinating listening to you Malcolm because it's easy to stand on the sidelines and throw stones it's easy to stand on the sidelines and criticize isn't it but you speak as somebody who's who's speaking from within a particular world and critiquing it from within yes um and for me that certainly adds weight to your voice I find it's easy for me to stand there and say oh look at that worship industry and 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 look what it's become and look what it's led to in our our worship services and so on but I see you you standing as somebody who's part of it and actually still a friend of you know you've, we've talked before you yes. said I'm still a friend I'm, I'm friends with these people absolutely there's no one there's very few people that you and I have ever met that wake up every morning trying to do trouble everything yeah. <laughs> and 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 you know in my in my activist days when I was a young white guy and I just wished I was born black and I was so upset with all white people because white people did all these wrong things in South Africa. I read this verse in Ecclesiastes, verse 4. I looked and I saw all the oppression that took place under the sun. I, saw, I looked and I saw the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. And then I looked and I saw their oppressors and they had no one to comfort them. And at that moment, I realized that the same ails affected those that were disenfranchised and those that were extremely privileged. And there's, not, there's no people... I, I, I know the, the, industry, the industry. I work, I work for a, the, the big company in, in Christian worship. The leader of the company that I work with has, has been a friend for years. I respect him. He's, he has to be one of the humblest people I have ever met. And he's employed me, who has radical ideas and all kinds of thoughts. And we've, we have a very peaceful, respectful relationship. And I absolutely honor what they do. As I've got older, it's very easy to judge. When, when things go wrong in life, and they do on a, on a fairly regularly basis, we, it's always easy to judge someone else's motives or their heart or their intentions. Mm-hmm. But mostly they're quite similar to ours. We're either all very fragile or we're all trying our hardest, whichever way we look at it. But it's possible, but we still, judgment is, is rele- relevant in Christianity, but it's, we're not to judge people's motives, but we can judge their ideas. We, of the prophet, because I'm a prophetic person and I've brought things in my life, I've, you know, I've, I don't know how, how to talk about it, but I'm someone who's innovative and then people get all flustered and then years later, some of my ideas might come into fruition and then I'm yeah. putting up my hand saying, remember me? And this is a very complicated procedure. But in that, um, the Bible says we should judge prophecy. It's good to, we can't just, you know, we didn't say judge the person, but we're supposed to evaluate ideas. It's possible to have the best heart in the world, but have a really clumsy idea. Mm. And so it's possible to be the most God-serving people, person, but absolutely be infatuated with production mm. and with influence and making an impact. But at the older I've got, I've come more to terms with the, the Jesus 
that did not account equality with God something to be grasped, but he too humbled himself and took on the form of a servant who did not leverage his privileges for influence. And he's ex- exceedingly influential and attractive to you and me because he doesn't leverage. But mm. if you and me are honest, it's not only the powerful, it's the weak too. The, all of us are looking to, to leverage our opportunities the, the, in the big ways and small ways. And yet that's foreign to the cause of Christ. And mm. so I don't know that I'm, you know, as, an, as a person who's an activist, you, I can very easily think that all rich people are greedy. Mm. But I learned that poor people can be as greedy and, and so on and so on. And, you know, because I'm me and I, have to, I, can, I can point the finger, but then I have to go home to me and I realize, oh, Malcolm, you, you're doing exactly the same thing. Let's, let, let's talk about common exchange and um, just a bit more about kind of specifically what, what is going on. What have, what have you put together? Who's involved? Um, and what, what might people who are listening to this look out for? You know, it's, it's, it's a, as with lots of things in life, it's, it's a clumsiness and a contradiction of terms, if I'm to be honest, because it's, it's me straddling my involvement in the publishing world. So I, I, I'm, I'm a person in the song business. I've always been in songs in my life. And then I'm a person who's involved in Christianity. And it's me trying to become an activist for this idea of the priesthood of believers, clumsily through the lens of songwriters. So I'm thinking we don't need only 18 people con- contributing to the lexicon or to the liturgy of Christianity. Let's increase that. And that's led me on a journey. And I think it's still evolving. I, if I'm going to answer your question correctly today, I'll probably answer it in the, through the lens of 2.0 because Common Exchange has so far been me gathering friends. I have more friends that are on the, on the site and I'm just building. I am like a little networking agent, like a little a mini, 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 mini internet all my life. I've always ha- hated the identifying as that, but I've come to terms with recent, myself recently. That's what I do and that's okay. I, I, I don't have to feel embarrassed about it. But I'm, I'm just aggregating people in my sphere of influence at a rate that I can cope with and, and um, spreading this idea amongst these various communities of the priesthood of believers and, and gathering songs, always with the purpose of launching 2.0. 2.0 will, will come out probably at the beginning of next year, maybe a little bit earlier. For the last five years, I've built a relationship and worked with United Pursuit. Who've been a, I've learned so much from these young guys in their 20s. And we've always intended to merge our various efforts because, one, we have similar hearts. But two, we spent five years collaborating and we're rubbing off on each other. So it's hard to distinguish between certain ingredients because we're just becoming, you know, more increasingly like-minded. So Common Exchange 2.0 is becoming a reversed engineered idea. With United Pursuit, we, we, we host, we advertise and host an, an event that, we, that we're doing outside Nashville in Johnny Cash's farm, old farm, um, in the first weekend of October, and we sold it out in two hours, which took us by surprise. We, had, we could have done the event four times we decided just to do one to, to iron out the kinks and to learn about it. But it's a retreat on a farm. We have some fairly 
well-knownish, important people coming to participate, they have not been advertised. They are coming as friends, not as as powerful people. And so no one will know who they are until they, they we are there. And we are re-engineering common exchange around this and more shared experiences, where we are going to be building community and blowing the whistle to the underground. The unconventional, predominantly the unconventional expressions of Christianity, and then people like myself who straddle the overground and the underground, but our hearts are in innovation. Our hearts are, mm. our hearts are in innovation, although we recognize that there's a world that has to exist and there's systems, and the systems are not evil. Sometimes they're just mechanisms that are built to sustain things. And so we're going to be doing these events. We've got several initiatives that are colliding. And our next, our next version of Common Exchange will be, Common Exchange will be the platform um, for all these various, um, you know, initiatives to fund an outlet for creativity, innovation, story, and thoughts. Underlying all of it is a song because in the core of it, myself, United Pursuit, all the different players, we're all song people. So the songs are disproportionately weighed in the system. But essentially, it's, it's basically it's an, an effort to instigate what we said, instigate the idea that more collaboration needs to happen and more people need to get a turn. And, but songs and the worship encounter have a primary unfair advantage in, in the system, as it were. And you've, um, you've championed songs, you've counseled songwriters over the years. And I, I, I'd just love to hear a bit of your insight into the kind of, I suppose, the character, the approach, the method of songwriters, where you've seen it be successful, where, you, where you've seen it and thought that's the way to go about writing songs. Do you have any... Any sort of advice from that point of view for our songwriters who are listening to this? You know, in terms of like raw talent, I don't think there's anything anybody can do. We, before we are born, somehow the destiny of God is, is at work and, and we all just, you know, find these different gifts and things working in us. You cannot really become something that God didn't in some way instill in you. So I don't know how to I don't know how to help someone become a better songwriter, um, but I know that songwriting has been given in some ways in a disproportionate place in Christianity, and I'm an, I'm for songwriting, so I'm I'm not against it. I'm I'm a champion for songwriting, but but it's disproportionate in this way that it's overly valued if left to itself outside of the ecology of all of God's kingdom it can become very vacuous very very quickly and so I I think that um and I'm also a student of the stats I you know I'm, I'm very familiar with uh, with the information because I'm I, I have access to it mm-hmm. and so it's I've watched because I'm old now so you, you can watch the the trajectory of a movement and learn from it when you're 57 in a way that you can't when you're 25 so we've watched, you and I have seen several things become very prominent and then slowly fade off into the sunset. And usually prominence, often, not always, and it's becoming less so, but often it's happened because of a real vital spiritual encounter. Something vital happened that just set off dominoes. And they can set mm-hmm. off dominoes for years, even if you 
deviate from the original intention. And so I, I always think it's very important for songwriters to think of their songs in the context of the greater landscape of the kingdom of God. Because right now, if, we, if you talk about the worship industry, if we, if we just write songs in a void, if we just think we write songs and we need to write songs, it's very easy that one degree shift within a few years becomes embarrassing. And, and there's nothing more wonderful than the songs that are written in real life experiences. And we worship songs can easily become jingles. Many, many mm-hmm. of them are. We have an idea. We believe in Colgate and we write a song to make sure that people buy our toothpaste, toothpaste and we believe in these things. There's, there's an increasing shortage of songs that are real. It's very seldom that you listen to a worship song and know if the writer had a bad day or not. Um, yeah. Because they, they, they jingles. They, they have all the right things. And, and we, we need, I think we need more honesty and fragility. A, many of the key movements in praise and worship do not necessarily advocate uh, the confession of sin or the uh, embracing of fragility and vulnerability as a, as a theological premise. And so there's an emphasis on our songs f- toward proclaiming what isn't as if it were. If you look at the songs, and, and, it, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a necessary adjustment to a predecessor, which was, oh, I'm a woman, every, I'm sinful and I'm terrible. But we sometimes can overcorrect these problems. And so one, I think that we do, my main input is to the songwriters is we, we need incredible vulnerability and honesty and tenderness because our Christianity is craving to sing songs that were birthed honestly and not just in a machine. Malcolm, we really appreciate you joining us today. Um, and we've been, we've been blessed to draw on your experience, your wisdom, your insight. And I love the way that you've, you've, you've continued to describe yourself as a work in progress and that we hear that your kind of, your story is continuing and is continuing to evolve um, but there are these threads in there. There is this thread of you're, you're always drawn back to the to the songs, to the worship, and to the activism and the protests and those things coming together in what you're doing. So it's it's wonderful to see. I want to encourage people to to go to your common it's commonexchange.org, isn't Correct. it? Correct. Commonexchange.org. They can go and have a look. They can see some stuff. Is there's an intro video? Uh, I think is that narrated by our our good friend Dan Weeks. You did very well. Ah, uh, yes, I spotted that voice. So you can go <laughs> listen to Dan um, uh, talking on there about what's about what's going on. We can keep our eyes out and um, for what happens in the future as and well. It's a work in progress, as you could tell. I I didn't have a very clear answer for you, but it's it's, <laughs> it's an evolving initiative that will become clearer and clearer yeah it's a well it's i suppose a movement it's not a product is it that's the thing you can't package it at this stage you're just trying to get balls rolling correct a small Um, movement but nevertheless it is moving um there's one final question i've got for you that we we ask everyone who we interview we put them on the spot and that that is this um if you could sort of rewrite the the history of songwriting and you could claim someone else's song as your own um, or you could pick a song that someone else has written and you just think, oh, I'd love to have written that. What would you choose? That's the most difficult question. I'm going to give you two answers. All right. <laughs> if I'm answering in the context of praise and worship, 
Yeah. I would love to have written the hymn I referenced earlier, Dear Lord and Father okay. of Mankind. Yeah. That is a, I don't know if you know the, the story, but that's a longer poem. It is a whole bunch of um, stanzas before the, the last six that the hymn's taken out of. That's most interesting, written by the, some Quaker. But I, that is one song. That is my all-time favorite worship song. I wish I could, have, I could write lyrics like that. <laughs> okay. that. That makes me very tender and very silenced. Yeah. But if I had it, there's a song. It's called Untitled. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's not in the Christian world. It's actually a Jewish song. It deals with anti-Semitism. Written by Peter Himmelman, who's one of Bob Dylan's nephews. So he's not the most famous guy and it's not the most famous song. But the spirit of that song, with all the guts and the honesty and the crudeness of it, is whenever I listen to that song, I just think, man, just imagine if the songs in Christianity had this level of passion and intensity. Yeah. And so that, there's a song to go and explore in Spotify. I think it's called Untitled. If I'm wrong, um, I'll let you know and... Yeah, we'll, I think we'll look it up and try and put a link somewhere. Uh-huh. Brilliant. Malcolm, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you, Joel. I'll be back at the beginning of September with Sam in tow once again. Uh, until then, enjoy August. Keep on writing your songs of vocation. Remember to go and check out the Cardaphonia vocation song. We're going to play out with a featured song as we do every time. And this time we're going to bring one from uh, the Common Hymnal. And uh, this is by two writers, one from Minneapolis called Mark, uh, I think it's Mark Schulmeisters. Yep. And from Sweden, Jenny Wallström. I don't know. I can't say their names, but it's a beautiful uh, song. And it's a transnational song, which is um, so much of what Malcolm and his work is about. So I think we really enjoy this one. It's called Come and Tear Down the Walls. And if you want to find out more, you can go to commonexchange.org and look at the Common Hymnal. Come and tear down the walls I built up Every wall I built up Every wall I built up Cause you deserve every piece of my heart Every piece of my heart Every piece of my heart Lord, I am trusting Giver, your love's like no other. Won't you come and break 
in my heart every piece in my heart every piece in my 